Now, hopefully you can see my PowerPoint. Um, we've uh, providentially been looking at the book of Habakkuk. It's faith in troubled times. And the book of Habakkuk, as we've seen, has been teaching us very, very clearly to think about how to handle evil times, whether it be worldwide in terms of a pandemic, whether it be more localized, like it was in the time of Habakkuk, where Judah was surrounded by Babylon and Syria and Egypt, or whether it be personally. And if you've got your Bible open, you can see in verse 17 and 18 just how hard it's got for Habakkuk. He says there are no figs, no grapes, no olives, no fields producing food, no sheep, no cattle. In other words, this is not talking just about Sainsbury's. This is not talking about what it's like in Sainsbury's. This picture was taken and put in the Daily Mail of a poor elderly gentleman who went up to Kiln Lane and there was no food left in one of the aisles. It's a story that's being repeated around all our supermarkets as uh, people's selfishness is clearly on display. But it's not just talking, the book of Habakkuk, about empty shelves. It's a bit more like what it was like at the end of World War II. At the end of World War II, not only millions of people were killed in the violence and in the warfare, Millions of people also starved to death in the winter times that followed with hardship, absolute social disaster, terrible suffering. And Habakkuk sees it. And at the very end of his book, he comes face to face with it, with a poise, with a patience that is only possible if you know the Lord Jesus. In fact, he says it's possible to face that kind of disaster with, with a sustained joy, not when it's past. But when you're in the middle of it. But it's not just on a, an international or a global scale. Here's Alan Gardner. Alan Gardner was a missionary. He was a missionary to a little remote uninhabited island off the bottom tip of South America. In 1851 he died. He was shipwrecked and he was the last one who was alive. He kept a journal and they found his journal next to his dead body. And the last entry in his journal, he wrote Psalm 34, verse 10, that says this, Young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So here's a man. Here's a man who's dying of starvation. Here's a man who's far away from home. Here's a man whose body is broken. Here's a man who's had all his hopes dashed. He will never see his loved ones again. His ministry has come to an end. And he writes down, to paraphrase, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now, how can someone do that? How can someone in 1851, as he died, with all his ministry and life in tatters, how can someone say, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God? Because I'm tempted to only be able to say that when things are going well. I'm tempted to only say that God is good when my larder is full. I'm tempted to say that God is good when the sun is out, like it is today. I'm tempted to say that God is good when the schools are in. I'm tempted to say that God is good when my health is fine, when my business is thriving, when my money is in my bank account is healthy. Then God is good. But the temptation we're all facing is to say he's not good in times such as these. This man, Alan Gardner, this man, Habakkuk, found a way to connect the reality of the world in which he lived with the reality of the goodness of God. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you rejoice when everything's going to pot? How do you rejoice when suffering is real globally? 
how do you say that God is good when suffering is real personally, when you're struggling for food, when you're concerned about finance? How can you say God is good then? Can you? Habakkuk says you can. Look at verses 17 to 18. Though the fig tree, though there's no food, though chapter 1 verse 6, Babylon is about to come in and, and do what God would have it do. God is still good. I want us to look at that this morning. I want us to look at this theme, which is what uh, what is rejoicing in suffering? How, how can we do it? How can we rejoice and say that God is good in the midst of suffering? It says that in uh, chapter three, verse 19. What is uh, rejoicing in suffering? It's the first question. We've got we've got four kind of uh, comments to look at. We've got a what. We've got a when. We've got a how. We've got a why. Here's the what. What does it mean to, to rejoice in suffering? I think it's in Habakkuk 3.19. It says this, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights. Now, that's a picture that Habakkuk's giving to us. He's, he's giving us a picture. He's saying, my feet can be like the feet of a deer. I can go up to the high place, to the places of, of beauty. This metaphor is, is it's like this picture. Here's a, here's a person who's gone out on a summer's day and, and they're climbing. They're, they're ascending up onto the high places. They're hand, ascending up so they can see beauty. They're going out for some exercise, perhaps. But climbing up mountains is incredibly dangerous. You can go up on the, the high mountains and uh, one slip and you're gone. It's very dangerous to climb mountains. But, but if you can navigate it, if you're able to walk with sure footedness, you can live up there. It's one of the safest places that uh, you can live. That's what people did in, uh, in ancient times. In ancient times, people would always make uh, houses and battlements and uh, places of security on the high places. They'd build uh, towers there. They'd build uh, ramparts there so that they could be protected. But because they had the height, it's far harder for people to attack them. It's far harder for people to invade them. It's protection, but it's also a vantage point. It gives you perspective. You can look over the valleys and you can see the weather coming. You can see enemies coming hours ahead of time, maybe even days ahead of time. It's dangerous, but it's more wonderful. Habakkuk is saying, 3.19, when suffering comes to you, it has a great potential to push you to the heights has a great potential to push you into the goodness of God in new ways. I mean, in times of suffering, there are two things that can happen. From my experience, when suffering comes and, and it's upon us in, in a clear and evident way today and for the coming months, either we will come through this with a more robust faith, with a greater confidence in God, or we won't. Either we'll be ascended up onto the heights as we lean away from our own resources onto God's, or we'll be satisfied in our own resources and we'll be in a worse state than we've ever been before. When suffering comes, you see people either get more compassionate, more generous, more kind-hearted, their spiritual life is more enriched if they're Christians, or they can become more cynical, they can become more bitter, they can become more selfish, more arrogant. And here's Alan Gardner, and he says, no, no, suffering has made God more sweeter to me. Suffering has made God more precious to me. That's what it means to uh, rejoice in suffering. It's in, in the midst of suffering. It's not to turn away from God, but it's to throw yourself upon him 
and it's to ascend the spiritual heights. And as God pushes you up those heights in the midst of suffering, it's my prayer that we all see that God is good and that we see that afresh. But that's not all. That's the uh, the what. How about the when? Here's the when. It's uh, in verse 16. When does the rejoicing in suffering happen? The second thing we learn here is not just about walking. It's not just about going out uh, on a summer's day and getting up to the mountaintops. The key question is, when does this happen? Does it come after the sorrow and the grief? No, it doesn't. 3.16 says it happens during the sorrow, during the grief. And it's really important to see that. Here's, uh, in verse 16, it's Habakkuk's response to what's been uh, going on in the rest of the whole book. In chapters 1, chapters 2, if you've not been with us or if you've forgotten like me, in chapters 1 and 2, God has been not been slow to say, this is what I'm going to do. Habakkuk has been pouring out his heart. He's been saying in chapter 1, God, are you there? Do you care? And Habakkuk is told by God, I'm going to do something so amazing that you wouldn't believe it even if I told it to you. And in verse 16, we've got this remarkable truth that is revealed by God to him that says, you know, in in times of uh, calamity, in times of social isolation that we find ourselves um, arm rubbing, even that's been forbidden now. But isolation could well be difficult for us. It could well be a killer for us in terms of mental health. And yet here is a person that says, I know what God will do. I know the days of trouble are just around the corner at the hand of the Babylonian Empire, chapter 1, verse 6. But I will still trust in God. But look at verse 16. He's not quite there yet. He hears what God will do. And how does he feel? Verse 16 says, I heard and my heart pounded. He says that in the original language, it says, my bowels trembled. My lips quivered. Now, we don't want to think about bowels for too long. Um, but my bowels quivered here he is before the great and almighty god and he's he's trembling his heart is thumping he's waiting patiently for the day of calamity and yet i will rejoice in god here's what he's saying he's saying i'm filled with sorrow i'm filled with heartache i'm filled with worry my concerns are to the max and yet i feel as if i can't stand on my own two feet but in the midst of that i found a peace In the midst of that, I found a poise. But there are two options when trouble comes. The two options are you can either be in deep sorrow or you can rejoice as a Christian. And the challenge from this sentence is that it says you can rejoice in the midst of your sorrow. You don't rejoice after it's passed. You don't rejoice before it's come. But there is a poise that the Christian can have that you can rejoice in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering. Verse 16 tells us that. How is that possible? Well, there's another great example, not just in uh, the mini Habakkuk, but in the book of Habakkuk itself. If you were to turn in your Bible, you don't have to. If you were to turn in your Bible to uh, Job and to chapter one, in Job one, you have um, the plan of what God will do. Satan comes and asks God's permission to go and test um, God's servant, Job. And all the horrible things that happened, he fell on the ground, he cried out. And yet it says at the end of Job 1, verse 22, in all these things, Job did not sin. 
and all these things that God allowed to happen in his sovereign purposes to his life, Job stood steadfast. And here's the challenge for us. Either we can be happy in the Lord, we can trust him, not in an inane way, or we can be filled with grief and anxiety. That's what we're going to think about on Tuesday and on Thursday lunchtimes this week. But the challenge from this passage is that the grief and the sorrow enhance the joy. They drive you more into God. Sorrow can show you the resources that you never realised you've got. They can enhance the joy. And that happens in the midst of the grief. It happens inside the sadness, inside the worry, inside the fear. It doesn't replace the sorrow, but it makes you finally emotionally healthy. It's something about our humanity, rejoicing in the Lord happens in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the queuing outside a supermarket. It happens with our weak and quivering lips. It happens when our knees are buckling underneath us. Because rejoicing is not just a feeling that comes and goes. Rejoicing is a reality. That's a what. That's a when. But okay, how on earth do you do it? If that's what it is, how do you do it? How do you rejoice in the midst of suffering? Three parts, three R's. Here's the first one. It's in verse 18. Here's the first one. It's repeating. How do you rejoice in the midst of suffering? How do you rejoice when you're anxious and fear-filled? Habakkuk tells us this is how you begin to do it. You do it by repeating. Look at sentence 18. I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my saviour. Now, there's something going on in this sentence that happens throughout the Bible. It's so um, easy to miss because it happens so frequently. It's hidden in plain sight, you could say. Habakkuk repeats himself. He says, 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. And then he comes right back and says, I will be joyful in God, my saviour. Now, why does he say it twice? Is this man in kind of some horrible need for an editor? He's, got, he's become too verbose. He's become too creative and flowery in his words. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. But then he says something a little bit differently. He says, I will be joyful in God, my saviour. It's a little different. It's a little bit richer. It gives you a deeper understanding of what he's saying and how he's feeling. The first discipline in rejoicing is to be repetitive. It's to repeat have you ever noticed, for example, why there are four Gospels? I mean, why is there four Gospels and not just one? I mean, did the first guy make a mistake? What's the point of four Gospels? Why wasn't one enough? I mean, they cover the same period of Jesus' life. They, they cover his ministry, and yet there is um, some repetition. They're like four camera angles from different uh, perspectives on the life and ministry of Jesus. They're important for repetition because they show us different parts of Jesus' character, his nature, his person, his work. And because of the different camera angles, we get to go deeper into Jesus and who he was. That's the purpose of repetition. I mean, why is there the feeding of 4,000 and the feeding of 5,000? Why um, in the Old Testament, in the time of Pharaoh, does Joseph get two dreams about the future? Why isn't one enough? Is there a mistake? There's not a mistake. But repetition is needed because our minds, Michael Wilcox, who's a Bible commentator, says our minds are centrifugal. 
they're self-focused they, uh, they they keep centered in on ourselves and we're so forgetful as well as as the force of our selfish nature just throws us out on different tangents and the danger is we forget core and central truths and so these great gospel truths need to be rubbed into our minds and need to be repeated to us again and again and again why because i'm so selfish why because i'm so forgetful and repetition is needed so that we can rejoice in the Lord. It's a biblical principle. I mean, how? How can Jesus on the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can the Lord Jesus say that when his soul is being poured out, when he's physically been battered and bruised and beaten, when he's dying on the cross for the sins of the world? Because that truth has been rubbed into his heart. He's meditated on on the word of God. It's, he doesn't have a, a Bible to hand, clearly, but he knows it in his heart. He's got deeper and deeper into the character of his father and his God. So how can you do it? Here's how you can begin to do it. You can meditate on a passage of the Bible. You can meditate on one sentence. One psalm, take Psalm 121 for this week. Meditate upon it. Then text a friend. Then Zoom call and say, I don't understand what this means. Can you help me? This is great. Can I share it with you? Then you can gather in the life group virtually on Tuesday or Wednesday. You can come to lunch with us on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. That's what uh, rejoicing is about. It's about repeating the truths of the gospel one to another. That's not all. There are two more hours. I'll get quicker. Don't worry. Here's the next one. It's remembering. The first one is repeating, repeating the gospel to ourselves. The second one is remembering the gospel. Look at chapter three again. Did you notice how saturated it is with Exodus language? Look at verse five. Verse five describes the plagues. Habakkuk is remembering Egypt. Habakkuk in verse six is remembering Mount Sinai. It's shaking. Verse eight, he's remembering what it was like as God led his people through the Red Sea trampling horses and chariots and all that stuff. And what is Habakkuk doing? Habakkuk is remembering the gospel. He's remembering his gospel. He's looking back to all he knows and he's saying, this is the gospel that I need to remember. The times are difficult. The uh, foundations of my life are shifting and changing. Where is my security? Where's my ballast spiritually? Where's my hope? Where's my resting place? It's the gospel, and Habakkuk's gospel was the Exodus. So he looks back into his history, into his time, and he remembers the time when God's people were delivered miraculously from slavery and bondage in Egypt. They had no power to get themselves out. They had no strength, no resources. But that's what Christianity is. It's not us saving ourselves. It's God rescuing us. And Habakkuk remembered that that's what God did in the Old Testament. It's the, uh, the gospel according to the Old Testament. And look at verse 16. Only when he does that, in the first 15 verses, does he say, verse 16, now I have peace. Now I've remembered the gospel. Now I've got perspective. I'm looking away from myself and I'm looking away from my situation and I'm looking to you, Lord. And now I remember who you are. Now I remember the strength of your arm. I can have peace. I mean, you can go to Luke 8 as well. Luke 8, um, there's some resources in our Google Drive on this. In Luke 8, it's one of my favourite resources. It's the, the story of in the gospel of Jesus stilling the storm. 
he's there in the boat the waves and the winds are huge there's experienced fishermen who whose knees are knocking and his lips are quivering and they say master don't you care that we're we're perishing don't you care just like Habakkuk chapter one don't you care that we're perishing we're going to die don't you even care and Jesus with the words of authority and power over the, the wind and the waves that know the sound of his voice as creator he stills the storm and it's like a billiard table but that's not all then he speaks to his disciples and he doesn't say you you're poor, you poor guys you need more faith you need to go and get some more faith from your cabinet you need to get uh, more faith and gird up your loins he doesn't say that he says where is your faith where is your faith you know who i am you've seen what i've done you've been with me where is your faith your problem, disciple, says Jesus, is you're not remembering who I am. I'm right here with you. Of course I care. Look at my authority afresh. That's what it means to rejoice. Being uh, someone who rejoices is not someone with a name grin on their face. But as a Christian, it's these three R's of repeating. It's this second R of remembering. It's this third R of rejoicing. It's this third R of of rejoicing how can you rejoice in the lord you need to remember who he is oh i meant to say remembering is a kind of a grisly metaphor i was going to uh, show you a picture that i saw of uh, someone's finger that was chopped in half and then it was being reattached but i got queasy so i thought you might get queasy so i decided not to show it but remembering remembering is putting together truths the things that have become separate and at this time, we need to remember who God is and, and what he's done. We need to remember his power and his promises. That's a part of remembering. But let's think about rejoicing. What does it mean to rejoice? I mean, in Philippians 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's a command from the apostle. So it's something that we should be doing, right? But it's got to be more than feeling happy. It's got to be more than uh, just uh, thinking happy thoughts. And I think the best way to think about it is it's it's a discipline. Rejoicing is a discipline of treasuring. It's a discipline of savoring. I mean, how can we rejoice when everything else is shaky? I mean, Habakkuk, what did he do? Habakkuk, Habakkuk went back. Habakkuk went back to his gospel, the gospel of the Old Testament, the Exodus event. And because his mind went there, his heart was fortified. He didn't just remember he remembered, then he started to adore. He remembered, then he started to adore, and then he started to worship because he remembered who God was and what he's done. But here's the thing. We've got a far greater exodus to remember than Habakkuk had. We've got the Lord Jesus to remember. We've got the reality of Easter that we'll celebrate soon virtually to remember. We've got Jesus on the cross, Jesus in the tomb, Jesus out of the empty tomb, Jesus at the right hand of his father. We've got the whole gospel to meditate upon. In Luke 10 that you can uh, I put on the PowerPoint, there's a really interesting account again in the ministry of Jesus when there's all sorts of things happening. All sorts of things are happening and the, the demons have been, uh, sorry, the disciples have been given power and authority to drive out demons. And yet they come to Jesus and uh, so proud of it, uh, with all that they're accomplishing, with all their workbook, you could say, with all their uh, 
their notebook if you're a GCSE uh, child joining us. You know what I mean? And here's what the demons, uh, well, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. Do not rejoice. Do not rejoice, Jesus says to his disciples, that the demons are subject to your name. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's the disciples saying, Jesus, look at what we've done with the authority you've given to us. Look at our power. Look at our authority. Look at how great we are. And Jesus says, it's not about that. It's not about your power. It's not about uh, the authority that I've given to you anyway. Here's something to really rejoice in. You're looking at the wrong thing. Here's something to rejoice in. Rejoice in the reality that your names are engraved. They're written in heaven. Now, the word is engraved. You engrave something in metal for permanence. You engrave or chip something into stone so that it lasts, so that you can be a somebody. And and here's the thing about COVID-19. COVID-19 has rocked us to our core as Christians. It's rocked us to our core as a society and globally as well. We all want our names to be engraved somewhere. We all want something to say, yeah, I'm a someone. It can be work. And then work is eroded. It can be a pension plan. I've made it. And then stocks dive. It can be uh, happy kids. I discipline my kids well when they're at school. But the reality is all those things have been swept away. And the question is, how can we rejoice? Here's a truth that Habakkuk looked back on and he meditated on and it fortified his soul. Here's a greater truth that we can look at. Here's something that we can rejoice in and worship and adore from. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven today you can do that on your sofa you can do that in your chair on your mobile wherever you are rejoice afresh in the gospel it's past tense by the way i want you to rejoice that your names are already engraved and written in heaven you're already accepted your place is already there you're already loved so rejoice we need to finish up i've got one more thing i want to say as we finish and that's the fourth Fourth part, we've looked at these four things of the what and the the how, but here's the why. Why why can we rejoice in our suffering? How is it possible? It sounds so out there when we're concerned about many, many things. Well, here's something I thought about this week. Do you know that Jesus met Moses? Do you know that once in his ministry, the Lord Jesus met Moses? It's there in Luke 9. It's called the the Transfiguration. Jesus uh, was on the mountain. He's up on the heights. Notice that, like Habakkuk. And on those heights with his disciples, his glory was revealed. He, He began to shine. He became glorious. And Moses and Elijah appeared alongside him. It's there in Luke 9, verse 31. No English translation quite knows how to deal with it. They're not talking about the exodus. Jesus says, I want you to understand my exodus. He's not looking back. He's looking forward. He's talking about his departure, Jesus. Can you imagine? Here's Moses showing up and saying, I pulled off a great exodus. You should have been there. He doesn't say that to Jesus. Jesus talks to him and says, I'm about to pull off the ultimate exodus. The one that you're you're passing through the Red Sea only pointed to Moses think about this Moses Moses risked his life to liberate the children of Israel from all that they were going through the political the social bondage 
What did Jesus do? Jesus was our and is our ultimate Moses. He gave his life in order to liberate us, not just from food shortages, not just from um, confinement, not just from self-isolation. He gave himself to liberate us from our two great evils, evil and sin and death itself. Moses, in the Old Testament, he risked his life to liberate his people. What did the ultimate Moses Jesus do? He gave his life. The first Moses, what did he do? He, he took a lamb and he put the blood on the doorposts as the children of Israel so that they could be forgiven and be freed. But the ultimate Moses was the lamb. It was his blood he gave so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be liberated from sin and death. The first Moses took some stones and graved the names of the children of Israel on them, precious stones, sapphires, rubies, diamonds. He put them on the breastplate of the high priest, his brother Aaron. So Aaron, when he was ministering in the tabernacle, had the names of the children of Israel engraved over his heart. But the ultimate Moses, Jesus, is the high priest. He stands before the Father, if you believe in him, with your names right on his hands and on his heart. Everything in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, was a copy of what's the reality in the heavenly places. And Jesus, if you believe in him, if you believe on him, because he gave his life, he was the lamb. And he stands right now in all our earthly confusion and heavenly peace before the Father, pleading for us with his names over our names over his heart. So when the Father looks at your name, he doesn't see you. He sees a diamond. He sees a ruby. He sees an emerald. He sees a precious stone. He sees the absolute beauty of Jesus, his son, who gave his life. He didn't risk it. He shed his own blood. He didn't just shed a lamb's blood. He shed his own blood. And now you can know that you're absolutely secure and safe if you believe in him. Now, why don't you use that? Use that to meditate on. Use that to be satisfied in. Use that when you're alone. Use that when you're anxious. Use that when you're afraid. Here's what I want you to think about as we finish. We're all discouraged. We're all concerned. Our wealth has gone through the floor. Our food is a concern now when it was just something that we presumed upon. We're all concerned about our health and our loved ones. We can't touch and reach and give people a hug like we want to. But here's your real wealth. Here's the place of real security. Here's a place that is un unperishable. It's not spoilable. It's eternally safe and secure. Some of you have lost an awful lot even this week. But here's something you can never lose because it's security found in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, in our weakness, please fortify us in the gospel, I pray. Help us to rejoice as Christians that our names are written in heaven. Help us to rejoice, not in Moses, but in the ultimate Moses, the Lord Jesus. Help us to think about that and all that you have done for us. Help us to treasure that, to dream about it so that we can handle all the challenges we face in the weeks to come. Help us to know that this is how it is possible to rejoice in you, I pray. Amen.